Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 6. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, we've been looking at a, a major central doctrine, central understanding of Christianity known as justification by faith, that we have been justified, that the very righteousness of God has been placed into our account in inexhaustible measure. Part of why, it's a huge part of why the gospel is indeed good news, because we don't have it on our own, nor can we manufacture it on our own. That was the big mistake that the religious leaders of Jesus' day made, thinking that they could make their own righteousness. When truly, uh, and, and, and that's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way see the kingdom of heaven. You can't get there from here, literally. You can't get there from here without his righteousness. So we've been looking at that. And uh, last week, we, in the last half of chapter 5, we looked at the two men. We looked at Adam and then Jesus and how sin was in the world long before the law of Moses came along. We looked at that. And Paul demonstrates that here in the text in, in chapter 5, uh, that it goes all the way back to Adam, the first man. Uh, we looked in 1 Corinthians where Paul describes him as the man of dust. We also looked at the fact that sin and death are totally connected. You cannot unhook one from the other. If there were no sin, there would be no death. If there were no death, it would be evidence that there's no sin in the world. But we know that both are. They're connected. They're linked. And they're both a result of Adam's sin. We call it original sin. We call it the fall of man. Same thing. Synonymous terms. So now in chapter 6, we're going to see how this linkage between sin and death applies to the life of a believer. Because there's great application for you and I in this. Uh, we looked at how it was that Jesus, Paul calls him the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians, he calls him also the heavenly man. How through the work of the cross, he both paid the penalty for sin, which was death, his death. He died for sin. And that in doing so, he conquered death because he had lived a life of perfect obedience, perfect righteousness before God, before the Father. And so there now, having conquered sin and death, that's both of the things that were conquered at the cross, he now offers that to all men. That by faith, I simply accept the fact that he did the work, he paid the price, he conquered sin, he conquered death that I know no longer need to live a life that's bound up by it. I mentioned last week that the Apostle Paul, he's laying the groundwork in chapter 5 for some tremendous truths that are available to us that he brings out in chapter 6. Uh, as we get into this, I want to I back up to verses 18 to 21 of chapter 5. Uh, you know me, I love the context. I, I want to catch the context of what he's going to say in chapter 6 because he sets it up at the end of chapter 5. He says, therefore, in verse 18 of chapter 5, as through one man's offense, he's talking about Adam's sin, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, that's Jesus' atoning work at the cross, the free gift, that's righteousness, came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners... That's Adam. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's Christ. We see the, the, the contrast here between the two men. 
Moreover, verse 20, uh, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, the law illustrates sin. The law sets God's standard. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little more as we go. But what he says here in verse 20, he says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace superabounded. That's literally how that renders in the Greek. It, 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 here's grace, or here's sin, and here's grace. It superabounds. It, it, there is no way that someone could outsin the grace of God. That's what he's saying. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We looked at that word reign. It's a kingly term. It's talking about dominion. He's talking about being part of the domain of sin, the domain of death. Now our lives have been transferred. If you're a believer in the work of Jesus, in the person of Christ. Now in chapter 6, Paul pivots. He, he, he He's... As I said, we've spent three chapters looking at what it is to be justified by faith. And he pivots from justification by faith to sanctification by faith. Uh, and they're different. I'm going to give you a, a definition. This is from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. You guys know I, I love that dictionary because Noah Webster was a godly man. And before <laughs> other people got a hold of it, his dictionary had some really good terms. Uh, and so I keep that on my phone and my computer and all that. I, I just love the definitions that he puts forth there. He says, justification is the remission of, remission of sin and absolution of guilt and punishment. In other words, it's forgiveness. It's an act of free grace by which God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on account of the atonement of Christ. That's justification. Here's sanctification. I want you to catch the difference. Sanctification is the act of consecrating or setting apart for a sacred purpose. The act of making holy. It's an act of God's grace by which the affections of men are purified or alienated from sin and the world and exalted to a supreme love to God. Isn't that good? I love those definitions. So as we look at the difference and as, as we pivot with Paul in this, getting into chapter 6, we want to understand that justification deals with a believer's legal standing before God. You have been justified. If you belong to Christ, you are justified. Your legal standing went from condemnation to life. Sanctification, on the other hand, deals with his or her spiritual and moral condition. I want to talk for a minute about the difference between position and practice. And this is, these are some deep theological terms. Uh, I pray you can just follow along. Uh, just, I, I'd love to break these things down into kind of bite-sized nuggets. So let's look at position and practice. Now, justification is purely positional. All right. It, it, yes, it has practical ramifications in our lives, but Understanding justification is that at the moment that I gave my life to Christ, I was justified. Period. End of story. I don't get more justified as I go along. Because that, as I mentioned, grace was added to my account where I cannot, I can't wear it out. I can't outsin it. It's a done deal. It's past tense in the life of a believer. Now, sanctification on the other hand, is that we're freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is both positional and practical. I mean, justification, we're freed from the penalty of sin. But sanctification has to do with not the penalty of sin, but 
the power of sin in our lives. And it's positional and practical. In other words, the moment I believed, I was sanctified. I was declared holy before God. And you're thinking, well, Pastor, you know, about my life, I was anything but holy. No, that's true. That's why, folks, we stress, come as you are. Let God do the cleaning. And I love the, I love the saying, you don't try to clean the fish before you catch them. It's, it doesn't work. It's putting it backwards. So what we're, what we're doing here is what we're looking at is the positional part of sanctification is I have been declared holy. There is nothing that will change that. That is an act of faith by simply believing that Jesus died the death that I deserve. And now his holiness is transferred to my account. That's positional. However, sanctification doesn't stop there. It's very, very practical as well. We've been declared holy and we are being made holy. That's the practical aspect of sanctification. Personal, practical holiness. Living a godly life is part of the process of sanctification that we are, that every believer is engaged in this. And we're going to talk about that as we go because Paul does a, a beautiful job, uh, really getting down into the nuts and bolts of sanctification here in chapter six. God has given us the grace to not only be forgiven, but now he's, he's given us the grace to live a different kind of life. That's the point in this. And he has. And, and we tend to think of grace as sort of one-dimensionally. Usually it's we connect grace, the grace of God, with forgiveness, and that's a good thing. It is. We have been forgiven by his grace. However, God has also given us the grace to live an entirely different life than that which we once knew. Uh, To live a life freed from sin, freed from the power of sin. To live a life where real victory over sin may be found and lived out. That's the process that each of us is engaged in. And it's a process, we'll get to that. Uh, Again, I don't want you getting tripped up thinking, well, you know, I, I know how often I blow it. I know how often I have, you know, this stuff in my life. But in verse 20, Paul gave a broad assurance that now, having been justified as a believer, he says, where sin abounded, grace superabounded much more. There's no sin greater than the grace of God. But as he's doing this, there's no doubt it would cause some to wonder uh, that and Paul's going to give answers to the, the the speculations that this would raise in people's minds in chapter 6. He's going to answer two questions here. And he's going to use, remember in chapter 3, he uses the imaginary objector. He presents both sides of the argument. He says, well, if I were doing this, then this is how I'd respond. He's going to do the same thing here, uh, primarily with the two questions, both in, in verse 1 and then in verse 15, which we'll get to next week. Uh, but he uses this imaginary objector. And the questions are, first of all, he says, shall we keep sinning that grace may keep abounding? And that would be the question. Remember, these guys were, they were gaining understanding as they went. These are valid questions in their minds. It wasn't just a carnal mind trying to hatch a scheme to do it and run around the fact that we're called to holy living. And that does happen. But that's not Paul's point here. The second uh, question that Paul answers is that uh, the fact had been revealed that we're not under law. We're not under the law of Moses. And Jew or Gentile, Gentile being anybody that's not a Jew, uh, 
And so shall we use our liberty as a covering in committing sin? Well, I'm not under the law, so I can sin. Those are the two things that he really hammers down on in this chapter. And there's great application for you and I in it. So let's begin. Verse one, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's answering that question. Remember, he said, (laughs) there's this whole thing about if if where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And so he wants to be able to give people an understanding of what he's intending in that statement. Now, when he says continue in sin, that's one word. It's one word in the original. And what he, what it, and it's also, it's written in the present active tense. In other words, grammatically, what he's talking about here is not the fact that we blow it, not the fact that we do sin at times. He's talking about the practice of habitual sin. This is someone who remains in a lifestyle of sin. Here's the imaginary objector's logic. After all, if grace superabounds in light of sin, aren't I actually promoting this greater grace of God through my sin? You know, how awful would it be, gang, if we gave our lives to Christ and he just, and and nothing changed, nothing shifted. And he allowed us to continue to live in the same sinful mess that drove us to him to begin with. That's not God's intention. And Paul's going to make that very clear as we go along. We're going to look at three points here this morning. Three applications, primary applications to us, for us, from this passage. The first from verse 1 is that verse 1 is not a description of the Christian life. Paul's response, verse 2, certainly not. (laughs) I love that. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So the word certainly not is a very strong statement. It's very emphatic. Uh, The King James renders this, God forbid. New American Standard, NASB. uh, May it never be. English Standard, by no means. From the JWT, what, are you nuts? (laughs) That's truly, I mean, that's what he's getting at here. It's like, what are you talking about? There is no possible way that that's what I'm intending. Certainly not. We've died to sin. You're not helping God out on this, is what he's saying. Uh, and, And what he is saying, really... Is, is it living in this way, living in this manner to continue in sin after having encountered Christ, after having given him your life, surrendered to him, repented of sin? It's unthinkable. That is not God's will. That's not God's design for our lives. Here's the principle. When you're born again, when you believed on Jesus for your salvation, your relationship my relationship with sin is permanently changed. It's different now. We have died to sin. That's what he says here. Therefore, if we've died to sin, then we should no longer live in it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the apostle Paul says this. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So Paul tells us that our, in our unregenerate state, we were dead in sin. Now, in Christ, the, the, the reason that this relationship has changed is we are no longer dead in sin. We are dead to sin. That's what he says here. 
So from going, the transaction is, is prior to Christ, I was dead in sin. In Christ, I am to be dead to sin. That's the positional. But folks, it also flows into the practical. The point, we, he says, we're no longer to live in sin, in habitual sinful lifestyle. It's, it doesn't work. Any other conclusion is both illogical and absurd. It would be the same thing as if I told you, well, those people died when the boat sank. So are they still now sailing on the sea? It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. And what he's saying is if you've died to sin, are you still going to live in sin? It's illogical. It's absurd. It doesn't work. Verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Interesting. Catch the connection between sin and death. It's all through here. It continues through into this passage. He's implying, are you ignorant of the fundamental truths of Christianity? The word do not know, do you not know, is agnoeo, and it means to be ignorant. It means to just be vacant when it comes to that. He's saying, are you ignorant of these things? He also says that many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Now, the word baptized there, it's an interesting word. It's a general word, and it's baptizo. Uh, and it means to immerse or to cover over. Now, this word is used four different ways in the New Testament. And the way in which it is used is determined by the context. I'll give you some examples. The first is baptized in water. It means to be immersed to co- and to be covered over with water. That's when we talk about water baptism. The second is baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's not water baptism, but it's a different baptism. It's to be covered over, to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. The third, to be baptized with suffering in Mark chapter 10. Uh, the guys come to Jesus and they say, hey, you know, could we like... <laughs> sit on your right, your left. You know, can we be have management positions in the kingdom? And he said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you be baptized with the same baptism with which I will be baptized? He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the baptism of suffering that he would endure very shortly at that time. So we see that baptism with suffering is part of it. Now here, he says, baptized into Christ Jesus. What he means in verse three, he says that you're immersed, you're identified. Your life is covered, immersed in Jesus. That's the point. Now, water baptism is a symbol of this. Remember, now I want to give some caution on the front end here. Remember when we were talking about circumcision here in, I think it was chapter four, and and we were looking at the fact that man tends to hang his hat on the symbols rather than what they represent. The Jews did that with circumcision. They were, well, yeah, I'm of the circumcision. And their lives were a mess. We can do the same thing with regard to baptism because what it represents is what's all important. Is your life immersed in Christ? Is your life covered with Christ? Or is he your life? The symbolism here to be immersed uh, when he's talking about that we were baptized into his death uh, is to be immersed, a picture of being buried, the, uh, of the death of the old life, dead to sin. That's what he's talking about. That's, that's as you go down into the water. Now, 
coming up out of the water. It's a picture of rising from the dead. A new life awaits. And that is a promise for every single believer. We're baptized into his death. We'll see here, resurrected to newness of life. This is a radical, life-changing transaction. Yeah, baptism is a symbol. When we do the baptism next Sunday, uh, I'll be meeting with the, the, the two of our youth that are going to be baptized. And I got a call from dad last night saying, hey, you know, there's one more. And, and I was just like, just rejoicing. Praise God. I'll be just doing a, just sort of a quick interview to make sure that they understand that it's not about the ritual. It's about what it represents. Yes, it's a sacrament in the Christian church. What that means is it's a sacred thing because what it represents goes so deep that it is absolutely life-changing. If you've experienced that, you know. Not baptism itself. And, and sometimes amazing things happen when people are water baptized. I, I'm not discounting that. But truly, for that person to understand the transaction, the outward sign of the inward act that that represents is everything. Verse 4, he says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. I just love that. And he says we were buried. That's one word in the Greek, asunthapto. And whenever you see the word son, it means plural. Uh, in other words, if you're a bondservant, then you're a doulos. If you are a fellow bondservant, then you're a son doulos. So Suntapta, what, what he's saying here is that we were literally in a spiritual sense, that we were buried together with him. That's what the baptism that he's talking about represents. To immerse in water here, when he uses the word baptism, he is talking about the sacrament. And it's to immerse in water as a Christian sacrament to, to demonstrate, to symbolize identification with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes. The point here is I have the power to live free from the sin which once dominated my life. And baptism is symbolic of the separation of a believer's life from that sin. To be dead to sin. Verse 5. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's where Paul is, he's making it very clear. This is symbolic. In the likeness of means is symbolic of. And he's saying in the likeness of his death, a believer's being put under the water at baptism. Uh, that's in the likeness of his death as we go down into the water. The actual union with Christ that this represents took place 2,000 years ago. But it's in the likeness of his death. Of what happened then? I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, if we stop there, what would baptism be like if we just baptized people into the likeness of his death? You just hold them under the water till they stop thrashing around. <laughs> but it goes beyond that. We've been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, immersion in water, dying to what we once were. And so we're united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Being raised out of the water, representing the fact that God has done more than forgive us. He's done more than justify us. He's giving us the power to live a different kind of life. That's why, I'll tell you what, one of the things that drew me to Christ is there was a, a guy, he was my parents' landlord when I was about 12 years old. Uh, I remember his last name was Shattuck. I don't remember his first name. 
But he had been a, a just a, a, a beer brawling, boozing guy, and, and I grew up in an alcoholic home, and he was friends with my parents, and then all of a sudden, this guy was different. And I saw it. I mean, all of a sudden, he was like, Praising God and, and making sure that we knew that he was a Christian now. And, and I, I was, I was shocked. It was a shocking transformation and it spoke to me all through my life until I gave my own life to Christ because it was a different kind of life. And we've experienced that. I pray we have. The wording we shall be it, it, in here, it doesn't necessarily mean future. What he's talking about is the divine order of things. And, and here in God's economy, people go from death to life. Now, in the natural realm, we go from life to death, but not so in the kingdom of God. Uh, we live in this upside down kingdom where the rules very often are the polar opposite of what this world runs on. And so as we look at what it is, what this transaction is, going from death to life is way different. And that's part of that radical changed life that he's illustrating here. So the first thing we looked at is Christianity is not about what we see in verse 1. It's not about staying in a, a sinful lifestyle. It's not about that. That would be a horrible witness. It would be one that it doesn't make sense, as we've said. As we've looked at verses 3 to 5, what we can draw out of that is because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have died to sin. He's provided us with the power to live this different life that I'm talking about. Now, in verses 6 through 10, he's going to talk about the old nature, that old sin nature, that nature of Adam that all of us are born with, that all of us deal with all of our lives, either we're yielded to it or we're yielded to Christ and we have to deal with that. We'll talk about that as we go. That that nature has been rendered inoperative. Now, he didn't annihilate that nature. We know that because sin pulls at us. But it has been rendered inoperative. He says in verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, that we don't need to be enslaved to that sinful nature. We don't need to be enslaved to the nature of Adam. When he says the word here, again, done away with is one word in, in Koine Greek. It's katargeo. And it means to render inoperative. It means to abolish. It means it's done away with. So the old man that we're talking about here, when he talks about the old man, it's, it's, it's that part of us that is patterned after Adam. It's deeply ingrained in rebellion towards God. That's, we are by nature children of wrath. That's our nature. It's the nature of Adam. Well, Moses couldn't deal with that. He couldn't deal with the old man. Uh, it can only tell the old man what God's righteous standard is. It doesn't have any power to deliver from that. But God's grace does. Through God's grace, we understand that the old man can never be reformed. I, I, <laughs> I gotta be straight up with you guys. I get upset when I look at some of what's being passed off out there as Christian teaching. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's not Christ. It's let me make your flesh a better place to live. At the end of the day, that's what it's about. 
And there's no room for transformation of the inner man, the inner woman, because now I'm learning that I can just live by these moral rules, but there's no life. I, I, I I can get a therapeutic message because some preacher pulled one verse out of the Bible and then he never went back to the Bible. He just talked about how messed up I am and how I can be better. That does a disservice, a complete disservice to the gospel of Christ. God's grace understands that the old man, it's not about being resuscitated. It's about there needs to be a death in your family. And by the way, that death needs to be you. In Ephesians 4.22 and Colossians 3.9, Paul exhorts, put off the old man. We're going to talk about that in verse 11. How do we deal with that? We reckon the old man to be dead. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But understand that the death of the old man is an established fact here. It's not something we have to guess at. It became a spiritual reality when we were identified with Jesus' death at our conversion. Uh, I, gosh, I just, I go back to the day of my, when I experienced God's touch for the first time, when I gave my life to Christ. Good Mormon boy, doing what I needed to do. Actually not. And my life was turned upside down. I went home and I was stressed out the whole day. I went to that church's evening service, pulled the pastor aside afterwards and said, I got a real problem. He said, what's that? I said, I either did the greatest thing I will ever do in my life, which turned out to be true, or I made the biggest mistake I will ever make. And he said, why is that? I said, I'm a Mormon. He said, no, you're not. You were a Mormon because that break had taken place, that break from the old life, that break from the life of sin. Because let's face it, folks, religion tries to to conform the outer man. Christianity transforms the inner man, the inner woman. And when God does a transforming transforming work, I'll tell you what, it's exciting. He says, just show up. Let me do the work in you. So the question then becomes, what do I do when I wrestle with sinful thoughts and impulses? And I know probably you don't. I, I do. We all do. As I mentioned, the old nature hasn't, it hasn't been annihilated. It hasn't been killed off. There's still a pull. But the power, its power has been rendered inoperative in my life. That's what he says, that the, the, the power of the old man, the old nature has been rendered inoperative. Well, what do you mean by that? Let me tell you how it works. Let me grab my water bottle here. I've got this water bottle in my hand. If I let go of it, it's going to go to the floor, maybe even make a mess. Now I got that lid on pretty good. But there's a greater power at work in my hand that's keeping it from dropping, right? I mean, my hand is what's separating that bottle from being here and being there. So the reason it would fall to the floor is because of the laws of gravity. We, we understand that. But gravity has been rendered inoperative by a greater power that's in my hand. You make sense? Is that, is it, are you connecting with that? A greater power has been introduced into the equation, into the situation. That's how God deals with us when it comes to sin. That's what he's saying is true in our lives. The power of sin would pull me down. Yet when Jesus comes into my life, he doesn't annihilate that power. It exists. But a greater power has come into our lives to, to render it powerless and inoperative. Sin still has a pull, doesn't it? But I'm under new management. 
I am not subject to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in the way I was before Christ because I have a new relationship with sin. I don't just go. I have a consciousness of sin. Have you ever noticed that when you're around somebody that has a foul mouth, that they just say things and you just great. Remember, one of the things after I got saved <laughs> that I... I I talked like that too. And, and even though I was a Mormon kid and all that, I mean, I wasn't conscious of sin. And all of a sudden I had this consciousness that it's like, wow, that's just not sitting right with me. It's because we have been given the power to have a different kind of life. And God is doing the work in us. It's not us struggling, trying to do that ourselves. That's why he talks about the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter five, but the fruit of the spirit. What's a deed? It's something you do. What's fruit? It's something that God produces in you. Yeah, sometimes it's hard because we want what we want, but there's a greater power at work in us. I can make those thoughts and impulses, the sinful thoughts and impulses, I can make them powerful by employing an act of my will and choosing them. Remember though, God, we're told in God's word that he will never allow us to be tempted beyond that which we're able to deal with. Now, He says he will always give a way of escape. Why? Because that's the higher power. That's the power that is in for in place that trumps those impulses to sin. He will give us that way of escape. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. The key, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, is in dying daily. We're talking about the will here, folks. I die daily. That's what Paul says. You want to have victory over sin? Die. And you want to have victory over that thought or that impulse? And, and you do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, take every thought captive before the throne of Christ. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God in your life, take it captive. Take it to him. You can have victory. You can experience rest and peace on the other side of that. That's our part. His part is he will take it. And I'll tell you what, there have been times where I'm wrestling with something, I'm wrestling something out in my mind, or I want my pound of flesh or whatever it is, and I might have to take that thing to him 50 times a day. If that's the case, take it to him 50 times a day. You're not going to wear him out. Positionally and practically, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. That's the point. Verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, sin is a cruel, cruel master. It always is. It'll take you further than you wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. It'll cost you more than you wanted to pay. And I'll tell you what, folks, I can just, all I can say is give a hearty amen to that. Stay away from it. There's an allure there. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses chose to be identified with these Hebrew slaves rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. It wouldn't be attractive or it wouldn't be, there wouldn't be an enticement if it wasn't, if there wasn't some attraction. But that's an attraction to that nature of Adam that we have been delivered from. It's not an attraction to the nature of Christ where we are now called to live. Having been born with the nature of Adam, sin's power is now broken. It's rendered inoperative according to what Paul says here through the work of Jesus on that cross. The point 
in this. Notice the continued connection between sin and death. That's why James says that when you know a person is tempted and then he's tempted and he carries out sin and that sin it produces death. There's no good end to it is what is being said. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion or reign over him. So our death with Christ is one side of the truth that Paul's presenting here. The other side is that we'll also live with him. We've died to sin. We now live to righteousness. The dominion of sin and death over us has been shattered. It's been broken. As a result, we share Christ's resurrection life in the here and now. Folks, this is part of the transaction. This is part of what he freely gives us. That's why we can't live, as he says in, in verse 1, having you know been delivered from sin, shall we now live in it? Why would I want to do that? I think of the verse in Isaiah where Isaiah talks about a dog returning to its vomit. And that's a picture of us when we want to return to a life of sin. When we, when we cave to that allure, to that attraction for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So the logic of this thought goes back to chapter 5. Last week, uh, we looked at Adam's trespass. And through his trespass, sin and death entered the world. And that remained the case until Christ came into the world with his death conquering sin and his resurrection conquering death, as we mentioned. That's the means by which we die to sin. Now, Jesus, I look at him as, as our great hero, an example. He never did and does not live for himself. He says the life that he lives, he lives to God. It's an example for us. Circling back to what Paul says in verse 1, we see that continuing in sin is tantamount to living for one's self. So the question becomes, and I'll tell you, honest self-examination, honest self-assessment, it can be really difficult. I don't know about you, but I've got the power to rationalize just about anything. I've got the power to justify my position, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Is your life centered? Is it immersed in living for our king and for his kingdom? Or do you tend to compartmentalize as something that uh, coming through the 20th century into the 21st that I see a lot and I'm aware of my own predisposition in my flesh. We want to compartmentalize. Well, there's my spiritual life, and then there's my life out there. I think I mentioned to you folks, I had Hebrews chapter 13. I had the Greek word uh, philozenia on my wall in my office for a long time. What it means is the love of strangers, where he's saying, you know, show love to strangers, because you don't know if you've entertained angels, all that. It's on a little thing back behind the coffee bar. But the point is, is that I became aware of the fact that I was compartmentalizing, in a, and it wasn't in a major way, but it was something that God convicted me over, that I don't want to treat you one way and treat the guy that works for the phone company, which really can tick me off, the other way. Do you understand what I mean? So, I mean, it, it, is it the minutiae in our lives? Yeah, it is. 
It's like the lady asked Dwight Moody one time, is anything, does God really care about the little things in my life? And he just answered her. He said, is anything big for God? Of course he does. He wants to do that conforming, transforming work in the little things of our lives. Because guess what? It's not the major decisions you make in your life. Yeah, they're important. But that's not what adds up to a life. It's the decisions you make every day, day in and day out. Those things that you hold up to the light of Christ and say, how should I deal with this? That's what adds up to a life. That's what adds up to the changed life, the different kind of life that he offers here. You don't have to compartmentalize. Let your life be immersed in Christ. That's the usage. That's what he means when he's talking about baptism. It's not just immersion in water. That's the symbol. The reality is immersed in Christ. Immersed in our, in our, in our King. Immersed in our Lord. Immersed in our Savior. Immersed in our Master. That's immersion. That's what the symbol points to. Verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word reckon here, it means to accept it as a fact. He's saying to accept these things as facts. The first thing we looked at is that continuing sin is not what Christianity is about. Second thing we looked at is because of Jesus' burial, death, burial, and resurrection, we've died to sin. He's provided us with the power to live a different kind of life. The third thing we've looked at here in verses 6 to 10 is the old sin nature has been rendered inoperative. He says, reckon. Uh, I looked this up in the original language. It's an accounting term. And what it means is that when the books are open, when the books are balanced, the bottom line, it might be black ink, it might be red ink, but it is going to be the bottom line. It is the way it is. So when he's saying, reckon these things to be so, he's saying, reckon yourself to be dead to sin, He's saying, accept it as a fact. Reckon it to be so in your life. God's saying, look at the transaction. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. Sin doesn't have to have dominion over you anymore. Accept it as a reality. Accept it as a fact. Accept all of it. I don't live in a habitual lifestyle of sin. I have the ability to live a different kind of life. And that old nature has been rendered inoperative. Yes, it's present. But I, but I have a, there's a higher, there's a greater power at work in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit working in me, changing me, conforming me to the image of his son. I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to the world, and I'm alive to God. In closing, I want to just, let's just get really real for a moment. Suddenly you're going along and all of a sudden it pops up. It might be a physical sin. It might be an attitude of your heart. It is that thing that you know well. It calls your name. It entices with a promise to gratify, even if that's a pound of flesh or if it's some other thing. It's sin. It's that thing which if you rationalize it or you toy with it or you're living a compartmentalized life, you'll cave to it just like you have a thousand times before. Or could it be, think with me for a moment, could it be that God's word is true? 
Could it be that there is power in the reckoning of these things as fact in your life, in my life? Either it has you and there's no escape and this stuff here in Romans 6 is not true. Or the instruction we receive here is true. The power of sin has been rendered inoperative. We don't have to go down that road. We can live a victorious life. Yes, we understand that the grace of God is there, that we can't outsin it. But that's never permission to live in it. It's, it's, it's understanding the ability that God gives us through the, the agency, through the working, through the power of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in chapter 8, to live above the cut, to live differently, to live a life that other people look at and they scratch their head and they go, Oh my goodness, what is it about you? Like I did with Mr. Shattuck. I mean, that was like 50 some years ago. And I remember it, speak of it to this day because his changed life changed my life. Uh, Chuck Smith used to say that all the time. A changed life changes a life. So folks, let's dare to believe that this is true. Let's dare to believe that we can live the life that he's called us to, understanding that we are washed in his grace, understanding that his forgiveness is there. First John 1 9, the Christian bar of soap. <laughs> if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness, because we serve a good and a merciful and a loving king. And he wants dominion in our lives. He doesn't want dominion to have our lives to be caught up in the dominion of sin. He's changed all that. We have a different relationship. Let's walk it out. Let's understand his grace is available to us when we blow it. But let's walk it out. Let's live the life that he's called us to live. Immersed in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. I just... uh, (laughs) I I read these things and just in applying them to my own heart, my own life, uh, I feel overwhelmed by your goodness. I feel overwhelmed by the fact that you didn't just save us and throw us in some bin marked heaven, but that you've given us a life that's worth living, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of tough times. Lord, work in us. We give you the keys to our heart afresh this morning. We pray that you would do the transforming work. Lord, let us just be a hasty distance from sin in our lives. Let us offer those things up to you to know that those things exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ and that need not be so. I pray for each person here, each person within the sound of my voice, that there would be a yieldness, a true yieldedness to the working of your spirit in us. We thank you for your love, your boundless love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son going to that cross for us. We give ourselves afresh to you now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.